So why don't we go ahead and start you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Saint Sebastian, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so yeah, as I said, we're not going to have any quiz this week. We'll reprise next week, or we'll start next week. And um, hopefully by the end of the class, I'll be able to explain a little bit of what we're going to look at over the course of the three classes coming next week. So this is the second sort of introductory lecture. <clears throat> Last time we began to really look at this idea of techne, scientism, a technocratic paradigm as it applies, uh, particularly to ethics, but also what it was in itself and how it sort of changes our worldview. Now we want to pass to the BOs, to the, the impact it has on our understanding of the human person uh, and our anthropology. And so what I, I'm going to make an argument for, or what I'd like to address, is specifically not just our understanding of the human person, is, who the human person is, but particularly the persons as being individuals in relationship. Yes, primarily relationship with God and with other persons, but when I was trying to put these notes together in an orderly fashion, I realized the best way to order the main points was to be able to look at the individual, man, woman, in relation to five different categories. Um, and possibly there are other categories that we can look at. The first is going to be in relationship to himself, specifically his or her body. Technology changes the way we interact with or understand our bodies. We've looked a lot of that already when we looked at sexual ethics. The second is going to be to others, specifically to other persons. This is going to be the relationship dynamic. Third, I'm going to put to nature and to our environment. Um, this is going to be the, the ecology point that we exist. We're embedded in, relation, in a series of relations. Uh, that go beyond just interpersonal relationships. Fourth, and this may not really, this may be more of an excursus, but to reality in general, how technology, particularly screens, media, change our perception, our interaction with reality. And, and finally, to limits, particularly the largest limit experience, that is death. Um, so these are going to be the five areas that we'll address and try to kind of look at each one of them individually. So once again, how does this pertain to a lot of what we're going to discuss in bioethics? Well, it's more of just a philosophical reflection, but I think a lot of the points hopefully uh, will be able to be thoughtfully applied in your own reflection on the specific issues that we will discuss. So, so first of all, and probably the, the most important, is that this technocratic paradigm impacts the way we look at the person as a whole, especially in relationship to soul and body, particularly to body. Now, we've already seen this. 
Um, and again, those who took the, the sexual ethics class and the fundamental class, that we live in a, a nihilistic worldview, one where there is no transcendent meaning, no spiritual dimension, not only in our perception of the world, but in relation to ourselves. So as a result, we're just bodies. There's no soul. There's no spiritual or higher faculties. There also is no teleology. Uh, because we are random products of evolution, um, according to this postmodern worldview, um, there's no natural law. There's no idea or understanding of the body being meant for something. We are going to impose meaning rather than draw it out from it, which means that we're not meant for gift. We're not meant for relation. Uh, we're not really meant for anything but to propagate and to survive. So that's sort of generally uh, we can understand that. But when it really comes down to it, the way that we tend to perceive the human being and the body uh, in this technocratic paradigm, what would you say is the, the, the mode or the way that science textbooks are, I don't know, postmodern or even just sort of generally rational thought would see the body or see the person? We're like a machine. Like a machine, yes. The, 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 we could probably go back to Descartes and the whole idea of the res extensa. Uh, there's the body uh, perceived as a machine. The, he, of course, had the soul was, was in the body. But here, the body is a system of processes uh, reducible to biology. Um, and, and, I mean, reducible to a number of different things, I think, probably. And so what happens is, is there's one of the articles that I don't know if I posted or not. I can for your optional reading. Is this this guy calls? I think it's Jason Blakely. He calls it the double hermeneutic effect. That we see the body as a machine. We talk about the body as a machine with each little gene and cell as a little small machine operating us. And the more we talk about it, the more we see it as that. And so it begins this sort of feedback loop where, because culturally we see it as that, we come to understand ourselves as that even more. Now, this is not just the body as a machine. We have to account for consciousness. We have to account for these higher faculties. So what is, what is uh, I mean, I'm not, none of us here necessarily are super scientists. Maybe we can ask Lewis, Dr. Lewis this. He could explain it to us. But what, what, what do we define the brain as? It's a wet computer. We're even sort of a wet machine. So there are neurons firing, but we can reduce consciousness to this biological, electro, electro, elect, electrical, uh, neurological process. Um, of course, we would dispute that by saying as much as these things may exist, consciousness is connected to the soul and much higher spiritual faculties. Even then, uh, when it comes to our own intelligence and consciousness, it's easy to reduce it to a sort of a computational model. That the brain is just another computer. Does the brain pass the Turing test? Can we tell if is it artificial intelligence? Is it really human intelligence? Even to the point in which maybe we can discuss, you know, can we can we advance artificial intelligence where it will advance so much? 
that you know uh, it will be able to function, even have emotions like a human? Or are we so reducible to um, technology and a machine, is it possible one day to download your brain? Joseph was talking about that last night in some weird TV show he's watching where people download grandma's brain and put it into some six foot five criminal. What is it called? Altered carbon? Altered carbon. Uh, for your next binge. No, no, I wouldn't recommend it. No, I was sad enough when I watched Wally and I saw the humans. Yeah. But like this idea, like, hey, well, you're just, you're basically a, a computer. We're just going to download this information and install it on another computer and you'll be able to live forever. Uh, ultimately, it's just reductionistic. Reduction, reducing this transcendental being to biology to computer. Uh, and the article that I gave you all from Gilbert Mylander to see basically the human as a collection of genes. You were being reduced to your parts, uh, the genes and the cells, not as a whole, not as a person. And so that's ultimately, I think, this approach leads us to not see the person as a whole, as a complete entity, but as a sum of parts, and those parts are often seen in a very mechanical way. But I guess most importantly for our discussion, and particularly moving forward when we're looking at bioethics, what is the big issue here when it comes to sort of this bifurcation of the person or this reduction of the person? What would you say is the biggest, most practical issue that is going to come up over and over again in the way we envision and understand man in relationship to himself? True. You're 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 root. You're getting there. However, yes, brother. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with that is like you're never going to get around moral culpability, and so you can't reduce people to biological processes, or else you can never really put someone in jail or something. I mean, I guess you could, but it would it would go against just the notion of freedom. No, I I think absolutely. But we've already started to discuss that. Are like, hey, there's deterministic visions of freedom. Uh, which is actually uh, another point that we can probably put here. I guess what I'm trying to, to, to say is it's going to change the way we view the body. That's the ultimate thing as a whole, not just in um, this idea that it's a collection of genes, but the body becomes something separate. Remember we talked about, John Paul II, I am my body. But here, instead, the body is separate. It is an object that I possess. And it becomes an object for manipulation. Remember what John Paul II, of the different arguments we looked at with contraception, his primary argument against contraception is not that it is contrary to life, but that the contraception sort of separates the person and makes the body, particularly the generative and procreative functions, a an object to be manipulated by science and technology. So I am not my body, we are not our bodies, but we now have power over the body um, with our technology, with our technique. The body becomes an object for manipulation, something that we possess. Um, Granted, all the other stuff we talked about is how we perceive the body in a mechanistic or reductionist perspective, but still, as a result of that, 
We can experiment on our bodies. We can control our bodies. We can have dominion over it. Now, there's not a doubt we're going to see we do have power and dominion, but it's not complete power and dominion. It's stewardship. And we're there to recognize the integrity of the human person and respect for the body. But ultimately, in Ratzinger's article that I gave you all on bioethics, this is his argument. He says, quote, this methodology in itself perfectly legitimate, he's talking about the scientific method, is affected by reducing the other in his physicality to an object of my observation. Indeed, to an object somehow constructed by methodological reduction, considered in only some aspects of its reality. So it's not, here he's talking about our relation to others. It's not, oh, you're another person who I'm treating. No, you are, you are your body, and your body I'm observing. Well, again, that power of observation can be turned inwards. So I become a body to observe, a body to manipulate and to control. So it all comes back to, Ratzinger says, and I think we talked about before, the question of power. Power over the world, power to generate your own ethical system, and power over your body. So the body, the person, begins becomes a object to be dominated, a problem to be solved, instead of a person to be given, to be loved, to be cherished. And so it's the body that is sort of removed from the person, reduced and called into question and seen as that problem to be solved. And so that's where I, I think I encourage you, and even though I didn't give it um, for you is, is a textbook or to read O. Carter Sneed's book that, that uh, I think I maybe gave you one or two essays from it. His anthropology or what he describes from this of the way, at least in American public policy, he looks at it from law. He's, he's an attorney and a law professor at Notre Dame. He looks at all these different bioethical laws and he kind of, through an inductive process, comes to an understanding of what the American technocratic anthropology is. What does, he, what does he say? He's using someone else's term, but what does he say that we see our body as, or we see our anthropology as? We are what? We talked, we talked more about this my first year. It is we are disembodied wills. Yeah. Gosh, that, I just think this is so perfect. You have these, the, the will to be able to choose, eh, to be able to know to some degree. But this is the predominant anthropology. And it comes as a result of our multi-layered technocratic approach to the body. We are a disembodied will. And so what, of course, this is all sort of like a neo-Gnosticism or the body created reality is called into question. Influenced, of course, by radical individualism, expressivism. But anything that is going to stop me from choosing and pursuing what I believe brings me happiness needs to be discarded. 
And so if I really think that I'm a woman, but I am biologically a male, well, I'm going to discard my body. I'm going to disincarnate in order to be able to live this out. So there's no real connections to myself. I'm a disembodied will. And if I am not a body, then guess what? I'm not existing in that physical relation to other people. Community also breaks down. And this is sort of the next point that we want to look at, man in relation. But there's one thing, though, that I guess we can thank Deacon for not showing up for Mass today. And, and me having to rely on the Spirit for my homily. Uh, maybe it was the Spirit, I don't know. Some Spirit. Some Spirit. <laughs> Y'all are just happy it was a brief Spirit. Uh, so... That Jesus calls the apostles to himself, and then they are with him, then they go out and start doing stuff. That their the fundamental attitude is being with Jesus, not our usefulness, or even not our productivity. And I, we're talking about this in fundamental morals, that so often, we talked a little bit about last night in our little discussion, that holiness today is based on progress and productivity. I need to be being productive. Now, this is, of course, this is sort of the American dream, the Protestant work ethic. If you're going to get to heaven, you need to be working hard, and God's going to bless you. Uh, so, but still, where does that all come from? It comes from sort of the scientific revolution and this technocratic approach where our value, our dignity, becomes the fact that we are subjecting the world around us to our technique. Well, so for Catholics and for Christians, why can't we subject our spirituality to technique? I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow these ways, and I'm going to become holy. I will be useful. Instead of holiness is something we receive from the Lord as a gift. Is it possible that you're, you're, if you put your own will and your own grasping for technique is absolutely useless, but once it flips... Um, once, once it flips and you start, you just have a fundamental different stance of, of your existence before God, because God does something to you. Can technique be essential? I mean, because all these spiritual masters, they got the first thing right, and then they built techniques based on that to help that. But if, if we're probably trying, like, no one's in there, it's no myself, I'm probably trying to put the car from the horse, start with the technique so I can become holy instead of. Well, I, I think that, I, can I maybe suggest that it becomes, you become the Lord's instrument instead. So instead of you saying, oh, I'm going to become holy by doing A, B, C, and D, I'm giving myself over to the Lord, to the Spirit, and then I will allow him to use me as an instrument. What is formation? Why you it's all my fault. We are put in this stepwise process, four pillars or four, you know, and is it like, it's going to happen? It's, it's just going to happen. God's going to show up and do so, and it's going to happen. Well, it's not, I mean, we're not advocating some type of a quietism here or know, know that every seminary one size fits all. We know there are best practices uh, for formation. Virtue is real. Um, but I think it's going to be that approach. Do we take a purely secular approach 
to virtue where we're going to do all these things and become more disciplined individuals? Or what is it that inspires our pursuit of virtue? Um, what is it that truly makes us holy? It's going to be that interior gift of the Spirit that allows us to be more docile uh, in letting the Lord use us and send us. You have to be with him before he can send you away. We're, we're passing away in a spiritual theology here, though. I wonder if there's maybe the difference between like an impersonal technique where I'm going to just accomplish something, and then, on the other hand, relationship with Christ. And then from that, like from any relationship, there just springs these natural things that you're going to do eventually. I, th- I think, yeah, that's like we're talking about like, hey, you can be obedient. This is what you need to form, be formed in, rather than, oh, I know that God the Father loves me. I am a son. Therefore, I will be obedient because I live in his house. It's not just motivation. It is instrumentation. That's for another beer another time. <laughs> but, but let's pass now to like seeing man, though, in relation to others, even though here we're, we're now sort of atomized, these disembodied beings, automatons interacting with each other on the internet, uh, not necessarily uh, establishing real relations, um, which I think, of course, is, is really interesting. We're going to look at more. You know, so much of our interaction now is mediated by screens and technology. Not that the phone and the, and the internet is not a good thing, but we, we are tend to, in our own relations, seem to be more disembodied, not able to really be in front of another person, to read body language. Uh, the hermeneutics of the gift is dismissed. We're not really called to gift because, hey, well, there's not a body to show us that we're called to gift, and there's no teleology. And so we sort of become these radically independent, isolated, alienated, no real sense of community, uh, struggling to figure out how to perceive another person face to face. It's the virtual world. It's uh, the metaverse, um, which I guess in a certain sense maybe can have some benefit for pilot training or whatever. But do you think we're ever going to really all go into the metaverse where we relate to each other as our avatars? Or do people still, because of the way that God created us, because of the way we evolved, whatever it is, need genuine, real relationship with other people? It can't all be virtual. Um, But what Carter Sneed's argument is this. He says, you know, you can sit here and have all of these nice, technocratic dreams and virtual reality and we can listen to Mark Zuckerberg and we can download our brains into computers. But the fact of the matter is our lived experience, our lived experience as humans in our bodies, we have to come to recognize our vulnerability, our dependence and our finitude. You know, whether it's you get older, when you're sick, when you're weak, if you don't recognize it, you can recognize it in others. People who are dependent on others for their well-being, for their help, uh, we could treat them like wolves and just dump them off in the forest and let them die because they're the weakest. But we have evolved to be a social beings because we take care of each other. 
And, you, and, and maybe there's a part of it that us wanting to avoid that. And so let's avoid having to face this. Uh, so let's just live in our little world or let's try to overcome these limits. But we can't. So Sneed says, because human beings live and negotiate the world as bodies, they are necessarily subject to vulnerability, dependence, and finitude common to all living and body things with all of the attendant challenges and gifts that follow. Thus, the anthropology of the atomized, unencumbered, inward-directed self of expressive individualism falls short because it cannot render intelligible either the core human realities embodiment of embodiment or recognize the unchosen debts that accrue to all human beings throughout their lifespans. And so what trumps all this is reality, is our experience. The differ, we can sit in, sit in our, our little bubble and create this wonderful technological paradise, but our experience is whenever we're sick or whenever we're weak, we can't do it alone. The computer is not going to be able to fix this. Now, Gilbert Mylander also, in his article, brings up the fact that in this relation, there's not just uh, horizontal and the fact that we are embodied creatures in relation to others. We're not just little disembodied wills. But there's also uh, a vertical dimension with future generations. And we're going to start talking about that, like now with the, the possibility of CRISPR and gene editing. So I choose to edit my genome, or even more, edit a sperm cell, or an egg. Well, I'm not just affecting me. What am I affecting? The other life, particularly for generations. What does that look like? Do we consider these implications, or is it just hubris? Um, so it appears that because I didn't... The, the way the computer, I set a recording, but it stopped because it only detected me, but I'm audio recording this, so that'll be sufficient. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Noted. Noted. I just, my little, my thing is, is I'm recording it on Google, but unless there was someone there to say, are you still here? Yeah, like, so there's a weird thing. I've seen some where they don't have to have someone, and some where they do, so. Right, we'll figure that out later. Um <laughs> So yes, like other generations are dependent upon us and the decisions that we make. I mean, you could say that that's what you hear, like, you know, treat your environment well because you're, the kids are going to inherit it. Treat your genes well because the other generations are going to inherit it. Now, again, a lot of the times we're going to look at it with that whole Iceland and, and eradicating Down syndrome. Well, aren't we doing good for the next generation? Are we really? You know, these are going to be difficult ethical questions. Number three, let's look at here in relationship to nature and our environment, um, the world around us. This is the question of ecology. Um, now, we can say from an experiential level, we've become very much out of touch with nature. Um, we're, we're so focused on our screens we're in our cars, we're in all these man-made products, which are not necessarily bad of themselves, but how does this technocratic mentality change our overall approach to nature? Trees, rocks, water, whatever. What does nature become? Something to control. Something to control. 
as opposed to this sacramental uh, reality where we are called to have that childlike wonder. Oh, look at the beautiful sky and the birds and all of these things. And like it happens to me, too. I remember as a kid, you're so curious and you're asking questions and you see God with everything. But you get so used to just going through the process, going through the technique that I may not be thinking, oh, I could turn that into a big uh, apartment complex and make lots of money from it if I dominated that property uh, or I could uh, gain the take the material from it. Um, it, which of course then it becomes something for profit, uh, even more so. What are we? Go- how are we going to make money off of this land? How am I going to uh, take the minerals from it, control them, and be able to make a profit to help myself? I mean, all these different questions. But the ar- larger issue is human ecology. Pope Francis talks about it, but the really the idea comes down or goes back to Benedict in Caritas and Veritate, where he he basically says that we can talk about the environment all we want, and we want to save the whales, and we don't want to pollute the water, and, and be careful of how we dominate creation. But the fact is, we complain about all that, and we see that we we are hurting the environment, and we're causing ecological disasters. But guess what? We're doing it to ourselves all the time by putting chemicals into our bodies, by the contraception, by all these different types of things. And we forget, oh, wait a second, we're part of the overall ecology. It's not, oh, here we are because we are self-conscious creatures. We're not part of the overall whole. Oh, no, we're part of the overall whole. And just as if we pollute other things, it affects the, the overall eco-diversity or the biological stasis, we can do it to ourselves too. Uh, You know, our duty, he says, quote, our duties towards the environment are linked to our duties towards the human person, considered in himself and in relation to others. It would be wrong to uphold one set of duties while trampling on the other. Herein lies the grave contradiction in our mentality and practice today, one which demeans the person, disrupts the environment, and damages society. And we see the abuse of power in all these other areas, but we don't see it whenever we apply it to ourselves. Uh, we, he says, the book of nature, this is Benedict, is one and individual. It takes in not only the environment, but also life, sexuality, marriage, the family, social relations, in a word, human, integral human development. So, yes. That, I think, is a question that, that I don't know would be something that I think hopefully Father talks about with y'all in social justice, because within the social teaching, there's going to be ecological justice. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we, we need fossil fuels. Uh, the world would just shut down. Is there a way to 
continue the use of fossil fuels and move towards cleaner energy? Um, I think so. Granted, they say nuclear energy is pretty clean energy, but, you know, there are problems with that. That's such a, because you get so many different complicated economic global restrictions and laws. I don't fully know, but that's going to be something that Father will discuss with y'all. Another beard topic for us. I don't want to get too much into that because it really does pass more into economic justice. Uh, I'm sorry, environmental justice and social justice, but I'm pretty sure Father will discuss it. What I do want to sort of move into is the, the from these top three to the last two, which I think are probably the most important and probably the most philosophical. One, and this is something that I've been reading a lot about lately and reflecting a lot about. Yes, it impact, the technocratic paradigm impacts our understanding of nature and our relation to nature and the environment, but also to reality itself. Not only, yes, as reality becomes, the nature becomes something to dominate, but I really think a big part, there was a book written on this a couple years ago, uh, several books written on it, that reality today becomes mediated. Very rarely do we have honest, unmediated encounters with reality. And even our unencumbered, unmediated encounters with reality are somehow mediated by the fact that we begin to perceive, like, I'm, I'm, out, I'm out in nature today. I'm going to this national park, and I'm encountering nature. No, that's mediated, because the U.S. government has, has, has put things in it and controlled it. And we have ideas, because of television and movies and music, of what trees should look like, of what things should be. Oh, wait a second. You know, this is what nature should look like. But it's really kind of messy, but it should be nice and pretty. Uh, the way that we have consumed so much media changes the way that we look at reality itself. But even more so, this idea, and I'm not just attacking it, the screen mediates our existence and the way that we go through and perceive the world. What are the three screens? There are three screens that tend to mediate existence. What's the first one? The phone. The phone. I think our phone, our smartphones. That's the first screen. Computer or television monitor. What's the last one? This is tricky, but if you think about it, man, it's probably had a bigger impact than all the other ones. No. Well, okay, this is the one. Like, this is this is the real beer discussion here. What's the third screen? BS. Sunscreen. No. I didn't say it was a digital screen. I just said it's a screen. No. Uh, One more guess, and then I can let you all think. But if I tell, if I don't tell you, I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to pay attention to the rest of the class. Actually, I think that was brilliant. The green screen. No. The green screen. The windshield. The windshield. The windshield. How? Think of how cars and travel have collapsed reality. I mean, like, think of it. Today, I'm going to Lafayette for a wedding. I can get to Lafayette in two hours and 15 minutes if there's no traffic in Baton Rouge because of that screen in front of me, because of the windshield and the way that distance now, 
We could get on a plane and be in Europe tomorrow. That would have been impossible before. So this is this is part of the whole thing of liquid modernity. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's changed our perception of reality, particularly though the two the screen or the phone is what we focus on a lot now. It mediates our relationships. Can people really communicate face to face? What is that like? Um, of course, they say that it leads to distraction, and there are a lot of different books that have been written on that. The one that I really enjoyed from last year was Stolen Focus. Um, I really, really like that by Johan Hari. And then there's new stuff, though. It's like, okay, yeah, the screen and Facebook and social media distract us, and we are distracted, but, but what's the other level of that? Why are we being distracted? We don't want to deal with reality. Yeah, but do you think it's just, oh, I'm just distracted? You don't think there are other forces behind it? Yeah, there's going to be, we're it, gonna, there's gonna be like a massive pillage of Silicon Valley in the next it's, it's, There's going to be riots. It's designed to be distracted. You're right. I mean, you're, the, you're, because your, your point is, it, yes, there are people there selling the algorithm, looking at data, because when you're distracted, that someone's going to make money off of you. You're, you're being profited. It's the attention economy, uh, as they call it, which we, f- we forget. Oh, no, I'm distracted because I'm playing this video game. Yeah, you are. But guess what? Somebody is making money off of it because they're either taking your data or they are selling you something. Everything is reduced to a commodity. But so regardless, though, so often, you know, if five, six, seven hours of our day are lived in a virtual world or reality is mediated, it's very easy to begin to believe that your body doesn't matter. When you're staring at a screen, you are, yeah, you're staring with your eyes, but you become a disembodied blob. And so this all, of course, this is the real interesting philosophical stuff. It affects our placeness. We don't feel grounded in our bodies. We don't feel grounded in a certain place in the world around us. So I'm reading this book now. This woman, she's, I've got a lot of recommendations for it, and I love it. It's brilliant. Although she's a Marxist. I don't have a Marxist. She doesn't like consumer capitalism, which I guess I don't really like either necessarily when it's abused. Uh, but this, her name is Jenny Odell, and the book is called How to Do Nothing, and it's brilliant, brilliant. Uh, she doesn't like Donald Trump at all, um, but then again, there are a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump. Uh, she has a political edge to the book, and the book came as a result of some of her political leanings, which, hey, it's neither here nor there, but she, she the first chapter is, she's talking about like how we're all conditioned to be distracted in this attention economy and not to produce. And so her thing is like how to do nothing, not just sit around on the couch and do nothing, but how to appreciate the world around us. And she goes to this rose garden in Oakland that's a big public work from the, uh, the 30s. And she's just sitting there listening to the birds, looking at the flowers. And she has this great paragraph. I'm going to give it to you at the end. Of course, such a solution isn't good for business. This is about disconnecting and just doing nothing as she defines it, not laziness. Nor can it be considered particularly innovative. But in the meantime, as I sit in the deep bowl of the rose garden, surrounded by various human and non-human bodies, birds, 
inhabiting a reality interwoven by myriad bodily sensitivities besides my own indeed, the very boundaries of my own body overcome by the smell of jasmine and just ripening blackberry, look down at my phone and wonder if it isn't its own kind of sensory deprivation chamber. That tiny glowing world of metrics cannot compare to this one, which speaks to me instead of breezes, light and shadow, and the unruly, indescribable detail of the real. That's interesting. It's like the phone is a sensory deprivation chamber. Anyhow, she has some very creative ideas. Uh, why don't you buy it and do it as your Linton reading? Just don't don't become a Marxist. But most importantly, this is again. This is like how how do we perceive reality now? What is the world around us? And there's plenty that's written on it. But this though is the big one. Technology gives us power to overcome limits. The issue is not just the way where it forms informs our stance to creation, to reality, to our bodies, but to man and deeper human questions. These deeper human questions. And so often these deeper human questions that we ask ourselves that traditionally philosophy and religion have addressed, but again, because we are so distracted, we don't think about them often that much. What is the meaning of life? Where are we going? Why do we suffer? What is the meaning of death? A lot of our existential questions tend to be tied to metaphysics and limit experiences. Ratzinger says this, quote, the metaphysical experiences of birth and death, of pain and one's own limits, which refer us to the ultimate question of life's meaning, are thus easily censured and redirected from the realm of being to that of acting. And this is in the, the, the technological sense. We're not just going to reflect on it. How do we act to address it, to stop it? Perhaps it is precisely to flee from these anguishing questions that man seeks to guarantee himself complete mastery over those key moments in life, harboring the illusion that he possesses himself through absolute freedom. He might achieve the ancient dream of making himself, not leaving anything to uncertainty, chance, or mystery. So instead of being faced with these questions and with philosophy and thought because for a number of different reasons, we don't really think about these questions much. And when we do, they become things that stop us from exercising our freedom as complete autonomy. And therefore, we want to overcome the limits. We don't want to face the mystery. And we can. We can because now we have the power. A thousand years ago, you didn't have the power. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. That's all you had. But now, no, we're going to overcome this. Because we have the power, the power to overcome the limit of the body, to remain youthful and healthy, to overcome the limits of suffering. And again, I'm not saying that pain medicine is not good. It is. Take your aspirin. Gender reassignment. Oh, this is who I am. Is, is this idea of gender reassignment possible without a technocratic mentality, which gives us the power to be able to say that we can do this, that you can change your sex? 
Wendell Berry says the danger most immediately to be feared in technological process is the degradation and obsolescence of the body. The body has limits that the machine does not have, although machines have limits. Therefore, remove the body from the machine so that the machine can continue as an unlimited idea. So, so what was what was the purpose of science or idea like for centuries? What was the purpose of science? To understand the world, to find the truth about the world. What is the purpose of science now? Yes. Yeah, now it's power. It's mastery. It's not like, not, what not is, always. Not, uh, not always, I'm true. Go, I'm going to go to the Baptist, because that's not, All right. you, find, you find people who really love it, especially, yeah, there are lovers of science. There are, oh yes, I know some. But but again, what is but there are the, there is the technocratic mentality that does say, hey, science is there for power. But even more so, what drives the power and the mastery? What, what, why 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 is there a tendency to go in that direction? Money, Money. profit. Prestige. Yeah. So again, you could say, well, we're going to have science for wonder and for truth, and that's, that, that that is there. And there is a I've, in my experience in working at the university and this is with college students who are young, where do you think I found, and I talk to other priests this way too, where, do I, where did I find more faith? Engineering department. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's more seminaries who are engineers, ex-engineers, than any other major in, in America. Oh, I, I, I think that's right. It is. It's, yes. What department does not have it? Liberal arts. Liberal arts. Yeah. Now, I was an English major, but yeah, you'd think like the liberal arts, you're going to be, encountering truth and beauty and goodness. Nope. Nope. But it is. There is. I saw that. We have tons of Bible studies with engineers. Trying to go into the English department. and get a, Forget it. Forget it. No. Uh, but again, I, I agree with you. Yeah, there, there is truth there. But a lot of it here, again, is driven by profit. But even more, the ultimate limit that is being overcome or the desire to be overcome um, is going to be death. We don't have an idea of redemption. There's no idea of transcendence or heaven. So let's overcome death. Transhumanism is the big one now. First of all, let's, let's stay young. But here, let's somehow be able to perfect the genome. Let's be able to download your brain and put it into another body. Let's freeze you or whatever. Let's have some dominance over death. What about euthanasia? What is euthanasia? It's the same thing. I want to have control. If I can't control that I'm going to die, I want to have control when I die in the way I want to die. I'm going to exert that. And all of it is rooted in what? We discussed it last night. Nick brought it up. It's in fear. Fear of suffering, death, the unknown, facing these difficult questions. We don't want to face them. We don't want to address them. Again, science and technology have done a lot of good to alleviate suffering, to extend our life. It's a lot of really great stuff. But if you don't approach it in a thoughtful manner, it can lead down a bad path. But ultimately... All of this leads to a temptation 
to become godlike, man to be seen as a limitless being. Not homo machina, which is man the machine, but homo deus, man the god. To become like gods, to transcend all these limits, to become omnipotent, all-powerful. We'll close with this, and, and, and again, this is something we had a little discussion about last night in our, in our chat, where we, we have the sacramental worldview, the nihilistic worldview. The sacramental worldview can be seen as being manifested in, let's say, holiness, childlike trust and wonder. The other one in the nihilistic worldview, technique and power, technology. And, and hey, with science and technology, do we really have need of God, as we talked about? Do we have need of redemption? You know, we're going we're gonna to overcome sin. We're going to overcome evil. And look how well that worked in the 20th century. We're going to create this utopian society. We're going to imitatize the eschaton. But that really didn't work too well. Um, it, it led to a lot of destruction. For Christians, though, it's Christ who gives, mystery, uh, gives meaning to life and death and suffering through the Paschal mystery. Um, and we don't have Jesus and we don't have technology, then we fall into despair or we just try to entertain ourselves to death. So without, again, trying to sound like I think that all technology and science is bad, no, it's good. And this is what I was alluding to in, in, in the mention of science fiction and the future where we're flying through space and we're transporting ourselves from one world to another and we're hopefully having all these great inventions that come along to make our lives easier and better, even they really don't make our lives too much easier and better, they just create more work. What place does a priest have in that world? What place does religion have in that world? What place does holiness have in that world? I don't know if I have an answer to that. I mean, I think it has to. I don't, I, we do not need to go back to the Middle Ages. We wouldn't have air conditioning. That's not good. It's too hot. Too many mosquitoes. I was talking a little bit about this last night. You walk into a confessional with a holy priest, and maybe it's the right flavor of holy that you need in that moment, and you experience in your body the reality of the sacrament. So you experience it, you know it's true, but then the, the absolute release and the, the change that comes over you because you just had a good confession, the way the priest spoke to you, the way you heard that, I mean, that, that's a cure for Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. A priest who actually, you feel the physical experience, not just spiritual, but it's physical, mediated. You walk out feeling different, and you know it's true, too. I mean, it's, it's all working together. One good confession like that convinces somebody that this is real. And it's a cure for Gnosticism. Because the problem is, a lot of kids, well, Students, but a lot of kids are told all about this truth, but until they actually experience it doing stuff to them, because it does stuff to us, that actually influences their their normal mode of existence. They're not going to realize it's there. But, but when you meet somebody who does it, it's like, oh. Well, I, I think you're right. Of course, the question would be then, like, what is holiness? How can we tell if somebody's holy? You know, 
Everybody saying, boy, that guy, Marco Rupnik, he's really holy. He makes some beautiful mosaics. Everyone's going in for spiritual direction. He's a complete scoundrel. Uh, but, but you bring it up. It's not just the holiness of the priests. It's the encounter of Christ in the sacrament. So in the same way, what we talked about it last, like the beautiful liturgy, you encounter something powerful there that is moving, that, that transports you. And I don't think it's just the encounter of the beauty. I think it's truth and goodness. Think of the people whose lives were changed because Mother Teresa took care of her, or, or that, those encounters. I've told you all that story of the guy, I mean, you've heard it before, the guy who's dying in, in the hospital, and he, it was actually Dolan used to tell this story. He would, went to go and... The sisters called him to come uh, bring him communion and anoint him or see him on Good Friday. No, for Good Friday, he was going and trying to bless everyone with a cross, let them reverence it. And and this guy supposedly was trying to bite people. This is during the AIDS epidemic. But when Dolan came, he reached out and grabbed the cross and kissed it. And then the next day on Holy Saturday, the sisters called him to come back. And he sat with him and the man was much calmer. He says, listen, I lived a horrible life. I uh, did a lot of drugs, un- things I'm not proud of, and I've just been the meanest person. And si- I've been in here in this hospital bed for months, cursing the sisters, trying to bite them, and they love me through it all. I want to be Catholic because of their witness. And so he anointed him, and the next day he died. Um, so beautiful story, but it, it is. It's the embodiment, whether it be liturgical or whether it be charity or mercy. I'm not saying it's opposite. They can yeah. work together. They have to work together. How? I don't know. But I guess culturally, people are conceiving it that way. But I have three kids in high school right now, and I've been kind of interested. They've been given these readings where it's a lot of like astrophysicists and things like this who have converted to Christianity after they discovered maybe like a galaxy far away or, you know, all of these things. And it was because that they were becoming aware that there has to be a creator, there has to be order. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't just chaos or random. Um, they keep, the more they dig, the deeper, the more technical they get, the more they're drawn to the idea of faith, and then they are open to it. So I guess I was going to say, hopefully priests would just be open to listening to people and open to having those conversations that, not to jump ahead and be like, well, I think that's that's what accompaniment ought that's what accompaniment ought to be. Whether you're dealing with somebody who's dealing with marriage or sexual sins, yeah. listening. But I, I think what you said is exactly what John said. That there is there are scientists, Father Robert Spitzer and his Magis Institute. Yeah. They are coming to this deeper understanding and discovering of order and structure in the universe. Um, and you couldn't do it without the technology we have to be able to perceive it. Uh, for those interested in that, those engineer, how many engineers in here? Raise your hand. A few. Yeah, one of the articles I put was Michael by Michael Polanyi, Life's Irreducible Structure, where he talks about this, about these structures that are within, inherent within machines, inherent within bodies, that have to come from outside of the machine itself, the order and the structure. And so that he uses that a way to see the structure of the body, the structure of the, the, the processing of the body as evidence of a creator who implanted that there. It's a more complicated argument than I'm giving you, but fascinating. So, all right, we're going to go next week. We have three classes. We're going to look at the ERDs. Please, 
It doesn't take you long. Look at the ethical and religious directives. Um, those are going to be important because we're going to consistently go back to them, particularly number three on the patient-person uh, relationship, the, the professional uh, doctor-physician-patient relationship. We're going to look at fundamental other principles like the principle of integrity, principle of totality, uh, double uh, cause, harms effect, you know, the double harms. We're going to look at those things. And then we're going to look at virtues and conscience. We're going to do it over the course of the whole week to give the foundational principles before we launch into the status of the human being and the beginning of life. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be. Or both out in. Amen. Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.